you know, traditionally weddings in Afghanistan, they'll invite a thousand people. It's kind of, you know, bring your family, bring your neighbors. They're huge affairs. Charlotte Bellis has been reporting on Afghanistan for the last year. In August, she was in Kabul to cover 100 years since independence, a celebration. And in the west of the city, another celebration was taking place, a wedding. So the wedding hall, it's called the Dubai Wedding Hall. looks like it's out of the 70s, 80s, kind of glitzy, if you will. And, you know, they pack a thousand people into this. And uh, at 10.40 that night, the couple, a Hazara couple, which is kind of the sheer minority in Afghanistan, so they just signed the wedding register. And the man has walked back into the male part of the wedding hall and everyone's cheered for him. People have sat down at this point ready to start eating dinner. That's when this ISIL suicide bomber walks up closer to the stage. The band's on the stage. They're ready to start playing as people eat. And that's when the bomb goes off. And instantly chaos. One second it goes from being this wedding. People are so excited. Everyone's congratulating the groom to, you know, you're in the heart of a war zone. Tragedy once again in the Afghan capital of Kabul. More than 60 killed, hundreds more wounded, and with ISIS claiming responsibility. Eyewitnesses say the bomber walked among the children dancing before detonating. With so many casualties flooding the hospital, patients were treated in the hallways. The Kabul ambulance service has just 29 ambulances for 5 million people. So you have an attack like this, you know, ambulances aren't going to do it. You've got to get you know, hail down taxis, throw people in cars, put people on the back of trucks. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The wedding attack by ISIL came during the final stages of peace talks between the Taliban and the United States. 2,000 kilometers away in Qatar, they've been finalizing a deal that could end an 18-year war or at least one chapter of it. Their sixth round of talks. The seventh round of peace talks. The ninth round of talks has ended in Doha at the threshold of an agreement. It will require the U.S. to pull out 5,400 troops within 135 days of the official signing of the agreement. There are 14,000 troops in Afghanistan. The agreement cannot be finalized until it receives President Trump's signature. A resulting deal could lead to a final exit of our troops from that country and an end to America's longest-running war. But in Afghanistan, there's been no end to the violence. Control of the country is divided between the Taliban and the Afghan government, which is backed by the U.S. The Taliban is stronger than it's been since the U.S. invaded. As for U.S. and Afghan forces, they actually killed more civilians last year than the Taliban did. So how can anything be ending? This week, we're talking to two journalists who've been in and out of Afghanistan for Al Jazeera. One Afghan, one foreigner. Both have been living kind of a double life. One part in five-star hotels in Doha, where U.S. and Taliban negotiators are talking peace. And another in Kabul, where people wake up every morning wondering if they might die that day. Which brings us back to Charlotte in the hours after that wedding bombing. 
So, in Kabul, we're not allowed to go to any attack sites until much later. So we decided to go to the hospital as a safer option, and at least then we could still talk to witnesses uh, instead of going to the wedding hall itself. We went to this uh, public hospital, all the signs hand-painted. The stench is pretty palpable. Iodine and various other things. Some people directed us up to the third floor, and we walked in and there was a man heavily bandaged and lying on the bed, but, you know, his limbs kind of over the side of the hospital bed splayed out. And he didn't have anyone else around him. And his left foot was hanging out over the side of the bed, and it had kind of pock marks, like where the shrapnel had had hit his foot. And then under his nails there was dried blood. Then he, he starts kind of moving and opening his eyes, and the oxygen mask falls off. And so I called the nurse over, and... I said, what's wrong with this man? And he said, oh, he's been in a coma. He was hurt last night. And he said, oh, he's actually coming out of the coma now. And so they called his uncle, and they kind of look over him and try to speak to him, and they say, what is your name? And he kind of mutters Zarif, which is obviously a great sign that he's got his wits enough to know his name. And afterwards, I... uh, said to the uncle, you know, what's his story? Was he friends with the groom or bride? He said, no, no, he was the, he's the wedding singer. I said, oh, who else was in the band? And he said, oh, his brothers and his cousins, there's seven of them. And I'm thinking, well, if he survived, you know, I wonder how the rest of them are doing because they would have all been in the same spot. And he said, no, he's the only one who's lived. So we've been talking about this tragic, harrowing story um, of what life in Kabul has been like in these very recent weeks. And then at the end of this, you get on a plane and you go back to the safety of Doha and Qatar, where you've been covering the big players, the power players on the other side of this. What is that transition like just for you as a journalist? Yeah, I I think I probably compartmentalise it because it probably couldn't be more opposite going from Kabul to five-star lifestyle of Doha. You know, the US delegation staying in the Ritz, they're meeting in the diplomatic club, everyone's wearing beautiful suits and nice watches and and they're talking with lawyers and it's all very highbrow. So I think it, it is jarring. Uh, but it is interesting to see how they talk and then and then having come from Afghanistan and thinking, how would this actually affect the people there and what would they say? They're not in the mix. The Afghan government's not really in the mix at this point. But to see how it works when you've got the Taliban and the Americans in the room together, it's so entertaining. So tell me who these people are. Because you've interviewed Zalmay Khalilzad. He's one of them. He's leading the talks for the U.S. side. Good afternoon. He's fascinating. He walks into a room and the room stops. I will ask your forgiveness for my voice uh, today. Uh, This is what 42 hours of talking with the Taliban can do to you. (laughs) Uh, I think he's probably late 60s. I hope he's not listening to this. I'd say late (laughs) 60s. Very well dressed. He's been ambassador, uh, ambassador for the U.S. in various countries and and comes with a great CV and knows a lot of the characters from the Taliban and also within the Afghan government. 
So, you know, he goes way back with a lot of these players. And then on the Taliban side, there's about 20 of them. And they are also fascinating. A lot of them were put into Guantanamo when the U.S., came in in 2001 then went through years of torture and now they come back and they're sitting across the table from military figures in fatigues and negotiating peace and you know one guy is is missing a leg and you know from war hobbles in the main guy for the Taliban is this guy Mullah Baradar who's the co-founder of the Taliban in his 50s Baradar has worked in the shadows his entire life Baradar was held in prison in Pakistan for eight years. He was only released in October at the request of US Special Envoy Zalmay Khalilzad because of his reputation for being pro-peace. He was the military commander for the Taliban, so responsible, once I did the maths, when he, when he was the military commander, 1,000 foreign soldiers, so US soldiers, British soldiers, died from fighting the Taliban while he was the military commander. And now he's in charge of their political team. It must be surreal for everyone in the room to be sitting in that room across from each other, given what you've just described. Absolutely. Yeah, especially you think at kind of at five o'clock in the morning, they're still all sitting there, you know, the, the Taliban drinking tea, the Americans drinking coffee, and their military fatigues and their turbans. And will Trump be okay if we put it this way? And will your followers be okay if we write it that way? Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think that they've actually even got to this point. So I've been seeing tweets about what these talks are like. So to be a fly on the wall, I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> but hoping that you can elucidate some of that for us. These are marathon sessions, I've heard. Yeah. What's going on? What are you able to gather from being in these, these meetings or, or in the outskirts of these meetings, really? Well, it's both uh, fascinating and boring at the same time. They really don't like journalists being there, fair enough, uh, because it's meant to be all very confidential. But a friend of mine, one of the people that I stay with in Kabul, Mujib Michal, who's a New York Times correspondent. And a former Al Jazeera web correspondent. And a former Al Jazeera person, yeah. So we showed up to the diplomatic club at the same time, and, and the security, you match big kind of six-foot men in thobes, said, no, nope, get out. And I thought, oh, this is, this is not great. How are we going to report? And so we tried again and we said, oh, look, we're just going for coffee. And they said, oh, oh, okay, okay, fine, just for coffee. And we ended up sitting in that coffee shop for four days. Wow. Kind of 12 hours a day. And then we positioned our seats at the end of the hallway we could see to the very end. And at lunchtime, the Taliban and the American would walk past the end of that hallway. And so after a couple of days, they started coming down and saying, oh, you know, good to see you guys. And, and uh, oh, yeah, it's exhausting. Oh, a bit frustrated. And the Taliban would come down and say, how's it going? Oh, the Americans. God, they just won't budge on this one word. And, oh, they're getting all caught up with this. And then they kind of vent. And, uh, and then they'd leave. And then the Americans come down. You guys were talking to the Taliban, right? What did they say to you? <laughs> The other journalists, because they couldn't get in, were hiding in the mosque because the Taliban pray five times a day. And so they'd hide in the mosque and ambush them and try to get information. And I found out about this and I said to the Taliban spokesperson, it's not fair, I don't go to the mosque. You know, I'm, I'm losing out and all these people get this information. And he said, well, you should come to the mosque. I'll teach you how to pray. It'll be nice, we can bond and, uh, you know, it'll be enlightening for everybody. 
And I thought, you know, that's people say, you know, how far have the Taliban come in progress-wise? And at least on the the diplomatic side, they're they're polite and they're open, and they understand that, you know, Western woman, you know, is a part of this. And and I mean, the U.S. some of the U.S. negotiators are women as well. The big question is, you know, they may be more modern, but what are the fighters like mm-hmm. in these rural areas? How progressive are they? So let's talk about what's actually on the table, because we know some of the specifics of the deal right now, what's meant to be the final deal. But tell me about how this U.S. withdrawal fits into the process of ending the conflict in Afghanistan. So at this point, I'll try to simplify it. It's a four-stage process. Step one and two, uh, the Americans will withdraw and take all the troops, and then the Taliban say, cool, if you guys leave, then we'll make sure that no al-Qaeda, no other groups will will hurt anyone in the West. We'll make sure no attacks happen like 9-11 uh, ever happen again. Then the Taliban have said, only then will we talk with the Afghan government and we'll come up with a new political system where we're a part of it. We don't want all the power, but we want to be involved and we want to change the constitution and we want to tweak what the political system will look like. And then the last part is a ceasefire. What's the motivation for the Taliban to stick to the deal if the U.S. leaves? Great question. That's what everyone's scared about. Will they stick to the deal? And I asked Salman Khalil said this, and he said, trust but verify. They know that that's a red line. There will have to be verifications. Uh, I have worked for Ronald Reagan and trust but verify, so there will have to be verification. And yet he won't say what verify means. I think that uh, the U.S. is trying to leave as many troops there as possible until they can see that the Taliban and the Afghan government are getting along, that they've come to a resolution before those last troops go. And not everyone's convinced. Nearly every former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan has signed on to a letter warning that the country could descend into civil war if U.S. forces leave now. They say a full withdrawal should only come after a final peace in Afghanistan. And there's no way to reach that peace during these talks in Qatar because the Afghan government isn't there. So questions about the future of Afghanistan and what it will look like well, those are being put on hold. There's very little sign that the Taliban is particularly willing to work with their countrymen. So if the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, can the Taliban be trusted to help deliver the peace? Some Afghans believe that the Taliban have evolved. Sharina Kazi is an online journalist with Al Jazeera. She's been covering the talks, too. And as an Afghan who was born in Doha and was based for years in Kabul, it's familiar territory. I would use the word evolve because during the Taliban rule, the group was known as an armed group. Now they have kind of shifted from being an armed group to a more political group. What the Taliban have said to me is that they have changed and learned, I would quote them, from their mistakes. So... That's what the Taliban in Doha are saying. But at the same time, you've got songs that are circulating in Afghanistan that show another perspective. I'm just playing a little bit of one now. Tell me what they're saying. 
In the song, it says, uh, in my beloved country, America lost its momentum. She became ready to negotiate the arrogant America. The song says, basically, you know, the, the U.S. is negotiating with us with tears in their eyes, humiliated and disgraced. So the message behind this is for the Taliban fighters to continue their fight because they have reached their goal by getting the Americans to talk to them about the withdrawal. So with the Taliban claiming victory and the negotiations coming to a close, we have to look closer at the player missing from the table, and that is the Afghan government. Why aren't they involved? So the Taliban has long refused to negotiate with the Afghan government, which has repeatedly invited the group for talks with no success. The group maintains that the country has been occupied by foreign forces. It says the Kabul government has no real power and considers it a puppet regime. You know, basically the group says any engagement with the government would grant it legitimacy. So, Sharina, it's kind of mystifying to think that all these negotiations are going on and the government, the elected government, is being shut out of them by the Taliban. But you did cover this one day in July when a few Afghan government officials came to Doha, not for official talks, just for this one-off icebreaker with the Taliban. So uh, these intra-Afghan talks that happened in Doha were very kind of significant because in the end they reached a conclusion that we both should try to reduce civilian casualties to zero. In the past where, you know, talks like that have happened with the opposition groups have not reached any kind of conclusion. We all we all thought, you know, this is big news and, you know, they've agreed to something like that. But the next day when I was, I walked into work, uh, sat at my desk and I found out that there was an attack and it was basically an air raid conducted by Afghan government forces um, on a house at a village in Baghlan province. That air raid resulted in a, in the death of a mother and her six children. I'd been reporting on these intra-Afghan talks. I saw the emotions. I saw how both sides were so determined. But here we are, you know, there's another attack and it's by government forces and it killed civilians. You know, the daily life of Afghans is, I think of this story uh, that I did. I spoke to a few people and they told me that they carry uh, notes with themselves when they step out of their houses. Their next of kin and, you know, their blood type and or where they live. So like basic information and they carry those notes in their pockets because, you know, there's this constant sense of, death that I can I can die any moment and it's been and it's been like that for 18 years you know you you step out of your house and you, you you're not you know hopeful of returning back the bombings the air raids the attacks they can all fade into the background for people who aren't living it but July was the deadliest month for civilians since 2017 as both Sharina and Charlotte have been reporting, that's not a coincidence. The prospect of peace has essentially fueled the war because both sides want leverage. And the theory has been that the more damage you can inflict, the more the other side will want to just put up the white flag. 
and the Taliban have, have definitely um, have run with that strategy. And, and if they stop fighting now, then why would the Afghan government negotiate with them? So they are determined to keep fighting until the very bitter end. Mm-hmm. We're really at a crucial time right now. They've got to the right on the verge of signing. They've shown the document to the Afghan government. There's elections at the end of September. You know, everything is coming to a head now. So there's there's a lot up in the air as to it could go any one of, you know, a hundred ways. There is fear that there could be a civil war if this all breaks down. If the group in Doha says, jump, will they jump? Or will they say, no, you know, we're not going to do what the Americans say. We can't believe you sold your soul to them. We're going to go fight for ISIS. And that's that's a real fear that the Americans have is that, you know, what if they splinter and... and it's a win for ISIS. Mm. And and what is that relationship with the Taliban? How are the two connected or not? They could not hate each other more, uh, which is, I find, really interesting. We went to Kuna. If you wouldn't have a front line, that's, that's where it is. And, you know, they fight cliffs to cliffs, valleys to valleys. And some ISIL people are actually Taliban who've been who are disenfranchised. Others, you know, ISIL's just run over a village and said, if you don't join with us, we'll kill you. Or it's a financial thing. So there's not a lot of job options. And ISIL pays better. You know, Taliban might offer 80 bucks a month to fight and ISIL offers 100. So you fight for ISIL and you put food on the table for your family. And with peace talks with the US and the Taliban, this is one big thing that everyone's pretty concerned about. Whatever Afghanistan becomes... Will that leadership be able to control ISIL? And that question of controlling ISIL is part of the reason we've been talking about that wedding bombing that happened. It's a sign of what's at stake if the Afghan government and the Taliban are not able to keep the peace. Yeah, the the wedding is a young Shia couple. They're the minority Muslim in Afghanistan, and they're often targeted by ISIL. They will target the Shia as much as they possibly can, and they will try to find the most awful thing they could do, like hit a wedding. And what happened to Zarif, the musician, since you last saw him? So I had great hope for Zarif because he knew his name when he woke up, when we were there, and then and that was one of the few positive elements in the story is that He had lived. And when we followed up last week, his uncle said, no, he died a few days ago. And it actually hit me quite hard because for some reason I felt quite attached to him. Maybe just because it was such a sad day that he was one thing that I was hopeful for. Talking to the uncle of relatives of the band, they were Sunni, and yet they were still killed. And the uncle said to me, you know, we don't care about Sunni or Shia. We're united. We're all feeling this. And we're, we're always caught up in the same attacks. Even if, you know, ISIL's trying to target Shia or whatever, we feel it together and we don't feel divided whatsoever. It's, it's only the extreme elements that are, that are trying to separate us. But, but we all get hit the same. And 
And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Morgan Waters, Nay Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. And Graylin Bouchier is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Charlotte Bellis, Sharina Kazi, and Akbar Shanwari. We'll be back next week. <laughs>